Welcome to the show. I'm Mary Goulet with Richard Otay and Wade in the control booth. And Kelly keeping the office humming along. We're sitting in force without Steve because he's out dazzling an audience somewhere. Welcome, Richard. Good afternoon, Mayor. Glad Hello. to be here. I'm excited. The cat's away. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What could have we been doing that we could have got away with? But I will just keep it going. Keep it going. Okay. So today on Beyond Eight Figures, our guest is Keisha Mays. Welcome to the program, Keisha. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I pronounced your name correctly. Yes, okay, you did. Good. Thank okay. you. <laughs> so you have a fascinating story, but first let's get a little business out of the way. We need to know how you qualified to meet the criteria of exiting for more than $10 million or running more than a $10 million company. It's running. I had I have not exited. I have no plans to exit. I just plan to continue to grow. Uh, and my company has several subsidiaries that have built, started in Hong Kong, um, moved over into the Middle East, and now back into the U.S., and doing a total of over $25 million in revenue, but as, as a total, not just as one company, but including the subsidiaries. Wow, that that's so fascinating, too, because we, as we looked over your bio and checked out the website and stuff, it's not like you're it looks like you're actually doing really cool stuff too. It's not like you're just selling a widget that sold the most widgets, right? <laughs> like you're, you actually have like, you're empowering people and it just, just seems like what it's all based off. So can you give us and listeners a little bit of backstory of how you got in or what exactly your business is? What's the model? And then we'll, we'll dive into it a little bit. Absolutely. So the core of it, when I started over 10 years ago, the core of it was about business development, working with SMEs to expand into new international markets. And like I said, I started in Hong Kong just because I was already living there at the time, and it just made sense to, like, in a market where you have relationships, why not start there? At the time, the economy was really good, and so I started there and expanded from there. And then from there, we added on different aspects, where it's like, you know, e-commerce agency, added on marketing, and then as I've grown over the years, I've become more and more passionate about how can I help other women entrepreneurs like achieve something similar in terms of success, in terms of you know maybe um, overcoming the failures that I had to deal with without without them having to go through the same thing. And so then it turned into okay, well I've made this money. Why not create an angel fund? Why not create a platform to help women entrepreneurs find ways to be the change you want to see. So it started with business development, expanded into e-commerce, then went into an angel fund, and then went into another platform that's launching this year to focus on women making her story in 2019 and beyond for, you know, business, creative, and literary. And that's the next avenue, because I set a goal for myself about a year ago that I wanted to help 1 million women entrepreneurs achieve a minimum of $1 million in annual revenue by December 31st, 2025. And so the way to scale that is the projects we're doing now. Wow. So, okay. That was a lot. <laughs> so I'm going to kind of pull, pull, pull back <laughs> know, a little bit. I know, it's like a rundown. <laughs> so, um, no, it's perfect, though, because it, it helps us kind of go back. So square one, you're doing business development. You saw that the relationships were the key there. Like, why yes. why start over from scratch? Let's use exi- existing relationships. And so did... 
So let's just uh, let's maybe cover the first million. What did did you get to your first million in revenue just doing that, or did you have to add on the e-commerce? Like what what was step one of the to say the million dollar mark? It was just it was really just that the first first million was business development, and I'll tell you why because it, it happened after the last recession um, of '08, and so once you know about, about a year or two afterwards. You know, people are starting to recover. Not everyone, of course, but businesses are starting to take more chances, willing to, you know, look at other opportunities. And so it kind of opened a door. I saw a door open, so I say, and I just took it and ran with it. So it started with that, and that's how I got to the first million through business development. And then was there something, did you feel as if you had to add these other e-commerce and doing these other things to grow the business, or was that clients were asking for that? What was the decision on, on adding that? I think it was both, uh, both because where we're headed, you know, technology, if you don't have, if you've got products, even if you have services, you should have an e-commerce store, no matter what, and it essentially you really should. And then the other part that we were asking for it, and the other part is I'm a big believer that you should have multiple streams of income because let's just say, you know, okay, I, I've made that first million, and then three years or four years later down the line, you know, something else happened, you know, and that caused, you know, an economic lapse of some sort, then if that stream dries up, then I'm going to be in trouble. So my thing was, okay, well, let's look at other opportunities. You know, what are the needs? What are the clients asking for? What are they not asking for? They don't even know what they need yet. So that we can, we can create multiple streams of income. So I'm not dependent on just one income. So that, you know, something goes wrong, you know, we I can't control the economy. We don't know what's going to happen next. You know, they're saying, you know, a recession's probably coming before 2020. I want to make sure that I'm always okay. So that's kind of like where that started. Multiple streams of income was the goal. So when you say we, how many people are on your team? Uh, right now we have 40. And within, um, it's a smaller team. I usually outsource. That's the other thing, too, to keep my overhead low. I'm really big about that. It's outsourcing. So on my team, 40. But then I outsource to other companies for different aspects. And you started this on your own, and yes. then and did you get any funding, or you financed along the way with earnings? Bootstrapped, okay. Completely bootstrapped because the, the company is called Just Fearless, right? So Just Fearless because that's how people would describe me who know me. And they would say, you know, you are just fearless. You'll try anything. You'll even if you fall flat on your face, you will still try it and get up and try again and learn from the failure. So. I bootstrapped. I, you know, used my used credit cards, used my own money. Um, when I started, it wasn't really like, you know, you're doing a business development. And essentially, it's like an agency. It's not easy to get, you know, funding up front for something like that, especially in, in a market like Hong Kong. So it had to come from me. And we're, how did you get to Hong Kong? Actually, living in, uh, initially then I was living in Thailand and Chiang Mai. It's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I had... You've heard about digital nomads, and so like for me, it's like how can I? I'm always about cutting costs. How can I cut costs? Travel the world. I, I was living in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and then I decided I wanted to go to Hong Kong and experience that. But I didn't, you know, I didn't stay there long in Hong Kong. If I started the company, because housing is very expensive there, as compared to Chiang Mai in Thailand. But it was just being in in uh, Southeast Asia and just you know lifestyle, quality of life. I don't have any kids. I'm not married. I can travel anywhere. As long as I have my laptop and Wi-Fi, I'm good. And how old were you when you first 
started doing that again? Oh my God, I am 37 now, so I had to be like late late 20s, maybe 26, 27. And you were raised in the states? Yes. You in know this Houston. is. I'm from from Houston, Texas. Houston. You know this is fascinating, right? I mean, the, just this part be. alone. I, I, I even <laughs> I wrote a book called From Failure to Fearless, where I literally laid out laid this like because people are just it's like you're saying it's fascinating. People are like, wait, what? I'm like, you have no idea. The story is crazy. It wouldn't. It's crazy, but it's my life. Wow. I mean, the numbers are huge. Twenty-four, twenty-five million. I don't think that. No, at least for me, it's not huge. It's not where I want to be at. So where I want to be is nine figures, and we're working on something that it helps that it helps to get there. So even though I appreciate that, for me, it's not when I look comparable to my peers and others that I know. But I get what you're saying. It's it's interesting. I almost look at your umbrellas on how you have it structured. I mean, I don't know the specifics, obviously, of how you have these companies structured, but at the it's almost as if you did so many things on your own early on that you said, okay, I'm going to make these multiple streams of income and I'm going to have these other companies, but they, they seem to work very well with each other, right? Like they could, one could disappear, but it doesn't necessarily affect the other entities, but yet it could still help the entity if it is there. I know that sounds strange, but because it sounds like you have events and all kinds of other things that you're doing, not just. So did you kind of have that plan when you were structuring out this umbrella of businesses underneath it or how, how did that structure come about? It wasn't, so it wasn't like a traditional like business plan, quote unquote. It was like an outline. Okay. What do you want to achieve? What's the end goal? You know what's the game plan? You're here. You got to do something. So it was like an outline, like focusing on the end result and then working backwards. So I know that's why I say when I say you know twenty four, twenty five million is not big. But that's not the end result for me. So it was like having that end result and then working backwards and then implementing step by step by step. And so it's it's grown. You know, at a steady pace. I wouldn't say it's like you know skyrocketed. I mean, we're talking over ten years ago, so it has not. While, you know, over the, the course of time, it looks huge, but that's 10 years of just steady, consistent growth, not like massively overnight, 10 years of lessons learned to get to this point. Well, if I can ask, um, this is Wade, and, yes. you know, as you're growing, you know, we're talking about the 10 years of steady growth. Part of that requires that you get out of your own way, right, that you yes. don't put your own limitations on there. So I'm wondering, when was the fearless moment or when was the flip switched that removed the limitations of finance where you, you know, went, you know what? I can do nine figures, right? That's not a typical thought for somebody. So I'm curious, was there a moment of fearlessness? Was there a moment where a switch was flipped where you went... I'm going to get out of my own way because this is what's possible. I think it's two things. I think it it possibly happened before I even started my company. Like I knew maybe even going back, you know, if you take it back to, you know, early 20s, high school, I knew that I was going to be working for myself as an entrepreneur. Like I knew that. Like I knew I wasn't going to go to college and get that degree. Like that at that time, they didn't have the entrepreneurship program. So, 
that wasn't the route for me. And some of my friends who I'm still friends with since high school would tell you that even in my apartment, like when I graduated from high school and got my own place, I would put up affirmations that, you know, I'm going to be like a multimillionaire. And I was like 18, 19, 20 years old. So I knew back then I would be wealthy. Now, when you ask me when did that, that flip to knowing that, you know, I could do nine figures or more, it was just like I have... I've hit rock bottom. I have, you know, some of my biggest failures that I wrote about it where, you know, I was 2000, probably 2009, one of the first events that we did, you know, because normally like I wanted to be added that additional income. One of the first events that we did, and like, you know, after doing it on a small scale, I decided to, you know, go from crawling to running without actually walking in between. And I literally crashed and burned. And when I did, I put myself like, you know, almost almost seven figures in the hole, almost getting sued by Susie Orman and Jillian Michaels. Like it, it was a massive and public failure. And so, when you actually when that that switch at that lowest point, it was like you can still do this. What's the worst that can happen? Someone sues you, so be it. It's life, but you can still do this. You got a bigger goal. I think after recovering from that, which took time, it was like let's revamp, let's replan. And let's focus on the end result. The end result is beyond way bigger than what you're at now. And that kind of actually kept me going. Because otherwise, you know, if you're facing, you know, potential lawsuits and you're in the hole almost seven figures, that's enough to break a lot of people. So it's having that, you know, that little peak of of just, ah, just a little peak of just something, that a light, like I guess you could say a little piece of a bright light, kept me going through that those times where it was like, rock bottom to me. So what specifically went wrong and what did you fix? Um, it was like the, it, it was doing our first like a uh, conference, like we a women's empowerment conference. Like I've always wanted to, I always love working with women. So I've always wanted to find a way to, you know, women to do this, something similar to what I'm doing. And I went too big, too fast. So like I said, I went from, you should crawl and then walk and then run. I went from crawling to running. The first two years were good. That third year, I tried to run without walking, and I planned this big three-day conference, and I had, you know, booked, you know, big-time speakers, Susie Orman, Jillian Michaels. At the time, Jillian Michaels was on The Biggest Loser. Um, Susie Orman's, you know, top of, top of her game, you know, all on Oprah and so forth. I thought you uh, called Jillian that. a loser. <laughs> no, 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 no. She's on The Biggest Loser. No, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Now no. she's going to come back and on. sue you. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. She was on that show, The Biggest Loser. It was really hot at that moment. And it was just having all, you know, they were promoting it for me, you know, having this different different, um, celebrities attached to it, and then having to cancel, like, a week before. Now, at the end of the day, the ball stops with me. At the end of the day, no matter what, I wasn't, you know, no matter what happened, there were things that happened behind the scenes, some things beyond my control, but it still stops with me. So having to cancel that event a week before, it was literally like pandemonium. So how did I fix it? I redid that event in the, um, later on that year on a much smaller scale, like doing what I should have done initially, just, you know, half a day event, you know, keeping it local with local, you know, local speakers, just being, you know, focused on the content rather than the, the celebrity of it. And that's how I was able to kind of like, uh, I guess, Reputation took a hit then, but it was just, I had to do it again. I had to try. So that was kind of like, got me back into the groove of doing more events. 
in addition to the business I was already doing. So it was just that it seemed like a long time ago, but it was it's forever etched in my mind because it was literally like just a one month period where it's just like my world was spinning because it was just like I don't even know how I got here. These people are very powerful, and I feel like I'm going to get burned royally. But thankfully, they did not see me. They could have. They didn't. Thankfully, eventually, your know, people's memories are short. So, you know, people, they say a lot of things negatively, you know, and obviously social media wasn't as as strong as it is now. Thank God. I don't know what I would have done if it had been <laughs> what social media is now. <laughs> I think that would have crushed me. But it was literally just that moment of, less, of learning a lesson in this. I'm like, where, what did you, where did you go wrong? You went too big, too fast. And I just started with a three-day conference. It would have been like a one-day happy event, mostly local speakers, maybe one or two celebrities. It was just literally learning what not to do the next time just because I was going to create that extra, you know, income stream and really have some, some great content for women that were attending. So did you, since you were heavily focused on relationships early, did you still, did you start from scratch, I guess, after that failure, you know, still having the knowledge or did you try to, did you try to get them back? Did they come back? Were the relationships strong enough that, Hey, I'll make, I'll make this right. Or did you kind of start with, no, I think those relationships were burned at that point. It was just, it was. That was done. Like I did end up the only at the time. Uh, I think I went a different direction. We reached out to others who, who knew me personally, like on a personal level, because they they know how I operate. They knew what happened behind the scenes that people weren't aware of. And I was like, I need your help to pull this off again on, on a much smaller scale, of course. So it was really asking asking a lot of people that knew you to be like, I need you to help me redo this on a smaller scale. So those relationships were from the main event that was done. Got it. So, I did, I did. so you still yeah. relied upon relationships. It just wasn't necessarily the front facing ones like Susie Arman and yes. Jillian Michaels. Got it. So in those early years, was that your business model was doing conferences? No, that was like adding an additional string. So it was okay. really like, you know, creating content for, you know, aspiring and current entrepreneurs as, you know, to, grow and develop from. Hmm. Wow. I mean, I understand diversification <laughs> and wanting all those different multiple streams of income. What advice do you have for someone who is very entrepreneurial and would like to kind of follow your path? Take your time. Like, I think I, I went, tried to go too fast too soon and it, it cost me some money along the way, got a lot of money along the way. Take your time and focus. And then once, you know, that first one is solid and generating, like it should really be generating money while sleeping. I think I've, I've read that quote attributed to Warren Buffett. If you're not making money while you're sleeping, you're working until you're, you're dead. So it should be focusing on that one stream going solidly. Then add in that second stream, get that focus, get that going solidly, then add in the next stream. But don't try to do it all at the same time. I think that's where I messed up with trying to do too much at the same time and then having to juggle, you know, trying to, and even then I had help, but still was trying to juggle too much and then also not willing to let go. Like if you hire somebody, let them do their job. Like don't try to do their job for them. Otherwise, what's the point of having them there? And that was my big issue is control. So like trying to do their job, do mine, and juggle all these different things going too fast, too soon. I would say take your time and focus. Get that one thing solid and then go from there and build it steadily. 
that's how I learned anything. I mean, I'm not saying you can't go fast. You can. That's your choice. That's your right. But if you want to avoid the lessons that I've learned along the way, take your time. Yeah, and if I can uh, kind of add on that, or, you know, kind of have you continue on that, because part of it is spinning that off, right? But yes. if we take uh-huh. it to just setting up a business, you know, typically the, over the course of a business, the entrepreneur does stuff, then they have to learn to let other people do stuff while they make yes. decisions, and then they have to let other people make decisions. That's usually the yes. tougher thing, right? Yep. And yep. then in, in a situation with you, they will often hit a point where what I set up doesn't scale, and now I need to reconfigure everything to allow it to scale. So to bring that to your point, you're setting up the business, you know, this opportunity, and mm-hmm. you brought on some people. Talk, us, talk to us about how you get yourself comfortable with bringing on decision makers and then freeing that so now you can go hop over onto this other project. Right. So in the in the beginning, I wasn't so good at it. So I, I can say I brought on people, but then I didn't free them to make those decisions. And if I had, maybe I would not have had that experience that I had with that event and a few other things. So I think it was maybe a few years after the fact where it was like, okay, like really having a a great talk with those, you know, within the inner circle. You know, I have most of my friends are also entrepreneurs as well. And so just having that conversation and just like, you know, Keisha, you got to learn to let go. You can't control every aspect in your life. You're going to grow to what you really want. If you keep trying to control every single thing they're doing, you got to let them, let them breathe. And so they came probably maybe four or five years later where it's like, okay, I need this to grow. I set a goal. The only way that's going to happen is if I let them breathe. They make a mistake. It's going to happen. It's life. Don't beat them up and don't beat yourself up. So I would say it was after going through all of that and then having someone really, I don't want to say an intervention, but someone just people that, you know, who just who have really good people around you who will tell you like it is. And they'll tell you, like, you really got to let go. You're never going to achieve what you're trying to go after if you keep trying to hold on to control everything. You hired them, trust them. They came with good references. You know, they do good work, trust them. So I would say... It was four to five years later before I even got to that point of being able to just hands off, let them make decisions, and if something goes wrong, we fix it. But for the most part, I can tell you once I did that, it was rare that there was ever an issue. It was really just like, you know, things just started to, to flow better. Things started to grow faster once I let go. And once I saw that, it was like a huge relief for me. It was like, I should have did this years ago. What was I thinking? That's how I felt. Well, when you're hiring these people too, kind of back to Wade's question a little bit, um, when you're hiring them, are you looking for people that are good at doing the things you're not as good at, or are you hiring people to fill specific roles regardless of if you're good at it or not? Both, because I think if you're going to grow as a business, I think Wade mentioned earlier, like, you know, you need to be giving giving direction and overseeing it. But in order for the business to really make money, you can't be, you know, handling the accounting or, like, you know, the graphic design or, you know, data 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 analyst analyzing data and so forth. You've got to, like, let people do their thing. A- a- am I good at accounting? Absolutely. Could I do graphic design? I can. 
believe it or not, but it's really a thing of hire them, let them do their things, and watch the money come in better because we're able to free your time up to really focus on, you know, make, making sure that the customers are taken care of, making sure you're on the right path and focusing on that next revenue stream as well. So I don't know if that answers the question. But no, it did. It for did. Me, well, it kind of leads me into the second part where I was going. So do you have this structured where somebody is in charge, like a CEO of each of those individual streams and you're CEO of the big company that is the umbrella for all those streams? Or do you literally have your hand in the day-to-day of each of those? Not in the day-to-day. So I have, like, directors and team leads. So directors handle each revenue stream and there's a team lead underneath them and then a team that they oversee and then like i said there are other aspects we actually outsource you know to other small businesses because it you know it it keeps my overhead low and helps another company creating a win-win so not anymore i I, if there's something big like a major major decision maybe we're considering you know doing something in another country or you know, a partnership of a great magnitude, then yes, I need to be involved with that conversation once it's, you know, gotten to a, an escalated point, but not in a day-to-day anymore because I really, I've, I've gotten better. I've made more money since I let go and took my hands off the day-to-day. And so do you find yourself more now being in the high-level thought process and then talk to each individual team leader and I forgot what the other phrase was you used, but like the director or whatever. Um, director and team lead. Yeah. yeah. So did you, do you kind of, I, I, let me, let me back up a tad. Of all okay. the umbrellas, is there one that the majority of income comes from? Like out of that 24 million, is it evenly divided? Like there's five revenue streams and they're 5 million each. Is it, is, does one get 80% of the revenue? Um, I wouldn't say it's, it's equally, but there's still like a few more that are still still developing. One we're actually launching next month, so that I can't even count right now. But it's building like behind the scenes. But I would say the e-commerce is probably the strongest, just because it's, there's a need. I mean, people whether they're a local business and not just in the U.S. but in other countries as well. So it's you know maybe they need to be on Shopify. Maybe they they have an Amazon store listing. You know how are they marketing it so that you know customers can find them. That's a very big, strong need. I would say the bulk is business development and e-commerce. But we're still expanding out into other avenues to make sure it's still not dependent on that. And I just don't want to be dependent on one or two things. And I want to do other things as well. I don't want to – I kind of want to evolve from this at some point and focus more on other aspects. So that's where it's heading. Yeah, and that that's literally why I brought it up that way because there's times when say, oh, well, this is working great we can do other things and get more revenue streams or we could double down, triple down, quadruple down on what we're doing in this one thing and make even more revenue from that one thing, right? Like Warren Buffett says uh, it's a delusion for people to say, put your eggs in multiple baskets. He says, put all your eggs in one basket and watch the hell out of that basket. But it's funny (laughs) because – his basket happens to be having bits and pieces of other people's basket. That's just his basket, yeah. you know? So it, really right. you just got to fit, find the model that fits you and how you want to handle the day to day. It sounds like you would 
you kind of almost have to have these umbrellas. I could picture you getting bored just doing one, <laughs> one thing. I think it's variety of the spice of life, right? So I, I, I've always known I'd like to evolve. Like I wanted to like do other things. I want to get into other industries. And, you know, it's essentially uh, to give you an idea of how I said, like, you know, this isn't the end goal. If it, the end result is bigger. One thing that I have modeled and always kind of respected and not, I wouldn't say follow the blueprint exactly, but like what Richard Branson has done with Virgin. Well, he's got you know, Virgin in just about every single industry. And when one doesn't work or is not making money, he'll shut it down. And he'll, you know, try new things and new industries and, you know, give it a shot and see what, see what works. So I think for me, that's what I'm aiming for for just fearless. Like we've been behind the scenes for years focusing on business development, focusing on e-commerce, really just working behind the scenes. But I want to come to the forefront and get my hands into other things and evolve from that. So if you're at, if, there's, if I'm looking at anything, and I 100% respect Warren Buffett, admire him, as you said, he said his basket has tons of other, like, you know, smaller baskets, mm-hmm. you know, that he has. So for me, I want to be have other, other baskets and other industries and watch the hell out of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, do you, so are you doing like a full service done for you model? So I'm I'm imagining I go to one of these conferences, it's women empowerment and we can show you, you can start your own business and we happen to have this e-commerce. The, the, are all these umbrella businesses working together to get that same kind of, is there a common theme? I'm seeing as I look through all your, your bios and the, and the stuff you sent in and your website, I kind of still see this theme of sounds like you want to give back to women what you've learned and what you could do different. Is that is that a common theme throughout all your businesses? I think that the underlying thing is definitely empowering women. So I think no matter what I've done, whether it's whether it's e-commerce, business development, whether it's the events, whether it's you know the angel fund or whatever, it's all about empowering women. It's all about um, being a change you want to see um, and, and not getting political, but just saying, you know, the climate that where we're at as a country right now, is kind of, it's kind of tense. And so, you know, some people are like, I want to fight and I want to resist. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I want to find a way to create change that's positive without having to be angry about it. So, you know, having that goal of helping 1 million women entrepreneurs generate a minimum of 1 million in any revenue, it, it drives me. I mean, it really drives me to really, because I understand that that could be, by achieving that, that's a trillion-dollar impact on the global economy. Mm-hmm. So I think that could have a great, a greater impact than anything I could do in other realms. So the underlying thing, yes, is empowering women, you know, whether they are already current entrepreneurs, whether they want to be entrepreneurs. And is entrepreneurship for everybody? No, I'm clear on that. The people want to have jobs, want, want that security of a paycheck. I get that. That's totally fine. But there are others who have an inkling, who have a gift of some sort, why not try to help them develop that and bring that out? So globally, what is the culture in your experience about empowering women where you've been living? I will say, <laughs> I've lived in quite a few countries, but I would say there are certain countries, and, and you know, I, I won't bash any, like, any bashing, but there are certain countries that only give lip service to it. But they'll say, you know, publicly, and their governments will say, we believe in gender equality. We believe in you know empowering women, but they don't take action towards it or put their money where their mouth is. And then there are other countries that are actually doing the work to really create that change and create the opportunities. So it it varies. You know, like I said, I, we do business in Hong Kong, we do business in the Middle East, we do business in Europe. It 
it varies by by even by country. I mean, it it varies. Like I just I think I find a whole lot more people giving lip service to it, but I want to change that. You know, and if governments could understand the financial impact, because usually that's what moves people anyway, especially governments, is money. If they could see that by, when we show them the numbers and the financial impact and what it could mean for tax revenue, economic development, and so forth, then you get more of a, well, let's, you know, put aside some funds to create, you know, an ecosystem here for startups to flourish and, and, and build um, from there. So I'm being slightly, slightly sarcastic here, but so in other words, you just changed it to um, – you don't have to think about empowering women. Empowering women is going to help you make more money, and then and now all of a sudden they want to they want to help the women, like whatever helps helping out. You know, like whatever. I've got to speak their language. I got to because, like I said, some people just give lip service to it. So, like you know, they don't really mean it until you show them the numbers, and it's like, oh, well, now we can make we can make more money. I mean, do I feel like it should it should be that way? No, it really shouldn't. But if we're being honest, if you want to create change within certain regions. Money talks before the the concern or just general consciousness of what gender equality means matters to those certain governments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like it could happen just the opposite if they weren't letting women have power. Like I, I, I think it's either way it works for you is kind of where I'm going. Like if they are not good mm-hmm. at it, there's probably a bunch of people that want to hear your message i.e. the women, right? right? And how how can we still do it when I'm in a country or in a position where everyone around me isn't as supportive as you might be? Um, So either way, you kind of win. You go in there and they want to do it and you can help them do it or they don't want to do it and now your message is even needed even more. What what are something you had to do to, to break to your system to get to the next level to let's say say to get to that eighth figure when you were already in the million was it just adding on new things or was there a different way of thinking was it a key hire like what what did you have to do different i i think for me it was expanding into new regions it wasn't necessarily adding additional revenue stream but you know we're not going to just stay focused on hong kong and mainland china or southeast asia you know, you can do Singapore, Kuala Lumpur, Thailand, and so forth. But let's expand to, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Oceania area. Let's go into the Middle East. You know, um, we've done some work in India, but India is an interesting challenge. So we haven't really expanded like I'd like to see there. We actually kind of walked away from India as a whole, but, you know, hope to come back later. But expanding into the Middle East definitely helped hit that eight-figure mark. And then even when we talk about, you mentioned earlier about, you know, just showing showing them the money. You know, that's the reason where, you know, it's a work in progress. You know, it's not where it should be, and I still have to tread lightly even when I speak about that. But it's a work in progress, and that helped reach that eight-figure, which, which relationships to get into that region of United Arab Emirates, of uh, Qatar and Bahrain and different countries like that. So when you're dealing with these other countries and cultures – are you fluent in any foreign languages, and have you studied, oh, there's a book out that's something like Shake. It's basically saying how each country likes to be acknowledged. Like if you hand someone in Japan, your business, they hand you their business card, you're supposed to literally read it. Right. In America, Absolutely. we don't. We just toss <laughs> it in our pocket. Most people, 
exactly put it in their pocket never, never to be seen again but no I, I definitely studied you know different how to respond different cultures worked with like a a coach to kind of make sure that i understood especially if you, when you get invited to an event or dinner served understanding you know how things work so i definitely studied for that if you ask what languages i speak beginners in arabic not fluent because it, to be honest with you a lot of the countries within the, the um, GCC, within which is still the Middle East, they focus on making sure that their residents understood English to have a competing chance in the global market. So while Arabic is obviously the basic language for many countries there, many people there speak English, whether it be in Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates, they do speak English. So it wasn't, it wasn't an issue of having to learn a language, but I would learn like basic, you know, basic phrases, just the maybe greetings or whatnot and so forth. I would say intermediate in Spanish, not totally fluent. Could I get better at it? Absolutely. But in the world of business, anyone I've dealt with, except maybe a handful, even in Hong Kong, they spoke English. It was, or had someone on the team that did. So it was never, it was never a hindrance. I guess if that makes sense. Muy bueno. <laughs> yeah, here in Southern California, you know, we do pick up a little bit of Spanish. But I had a, a quick question I wanted, or it's not necessarily a quick question. I'm curious, how do you protect yourself legally? You know, in part, I'm interested in uh, understanding more as you move, say, into the Middle East that isn't necessarily women business friendly, and you might run mm-hmm. into some things there, but how do you protect yourself as you move into these other countries legally to make sure you don't set this up and they go, oh, you're a woman-owned business. We take those over here. We, you know, here's this little law that gives us the right, or for whatever reason, how do you keep yourself from having whatever you built in these foreign countries not lost or taken away? having a very good legal team <laughs> that kind of guides me and gives me advice. And then also the other part, doing the research. Like for us, we, our our main branch within the Middle East is in the United Arab Emirates because they're, it's one of the most quote-unquote liberal countries in the Middle East. So for us, that's the focus of being there. And then when we do business in other countries, most people have representatives within Dubai or Abu Dhabi. And that's kind of like where we do most of our business. Have you branched out to other countries and worked with them? Absolutely. But the actual business, the actual team is in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. And people, when we do business with them, when we operate under those laws, and they're focused on being that uh, prime country or market for investors, for foreign investment and for business. So they're more open than most other uh, Middle Eastern countries in terms of allowing women to own businesses and creating the environment to make it easy to get banking and set up a business quickly and so forth. So I have a question, two questions for you. Um, because mm-hmm. it's, I have two streams of income and I'm working on a third right now. So I totally, and my first two are heavily real estate based. So if anything mm-hmm. happens in the market, I'm toast. So <laughs> that's why my third stream is completely different. Um, what, how many streams of income do you have and what, like, what are they? Um, I would say last count it was five and that would be from the business. I also have real estate like you. I've got, um, stock investments as well as for like passive income, but mostly from the business, like, um, three and we, a new, a new one's launching next month. So that will be six once that launches. So I was I count five right now. So 
three from the business, and then one in real estate and one in, in stock investments. Okay, so with real estate and stock, you're covered. You know, if there's flight sure, quality I, and high quality. Also, I think what made me go more, I, even like I, I'd always felt like real estate was a good asset, especially for residential real estate, because people always need some place to live, especially in certain more you know urban and city markets. But I think with the the new tax code, where they created the um, the Opportunity Act, where if you, in designated zones where they give immense, like you know, over a certain period of time, immense tax breaks and other benefits for investing in those zones, that made me push a little bit more money into it and just kind of like sit and hold. So like maybe if you're looking at say Detroit, you could go on Zillow right now and you'll see homes like two thousand, three thousand dollars. I, for me, it's you buy a property and hold on to it. And then, you know, maybe tear down that part at home that's no one living in, tear it down and just have the land. And there are other aspects where I'm actually renting out um, properties or I'm invested in real estate, tr- real estate trusts or other real estate funds. Like, it's, just, it's a variety of things. But not just, you know, all eggs in one basket. It's just, you know, taking advantage of the different aspects of real estate that I can invest in so that, you know, it's, like I guess I consider that one stream, but as I'm talking to you and I'm hearing myself out, I'm like that's actually multiple streams because it's real estate trust, uh, investing in real estate trust funds, investing in you know owning actual property and land and just holding on to it for that and building other properties for uh, residential investment. So I guess that could count as multiple streams. I always put that as, as one because it's real estate to me. So it's it, it's one stream in my mind. Yeah, diversification. Uh, my farmer grandfather always said, "They keep making people; they don't make more land." So exactly. buy land, right? <laughs> Tell that to Dubai, wait. Yeah. yeah, well, okay. It's, it's always the same, except when it's different. Um, now, I've got a question to kind of lead in a, a path that's the same thing, but slightly different variation. You've been talking about all the different ways that you're trying things to create money. And then acknowledging that, like you said, this you're a 10-year overnight success, right? So there's right. lots of right. slow and steady. So as people are entrepreneurial, as they're seeking out multiple things, they're going to try different things. How do you know when to go, this isn't working? How do you know when to distinguish between this needs a little bit more time or it's time isn't right versus, you know what? I just need to cut this loose and move on to something else. How do you make those decisions? For me, I, I like to give things the time to try to work out, you know, the kinks and see, you know, is it making money? If I don't make a decision quickly, maybe if we launch something, give it a year. Like, seriously, if we launch in a new, if I invest in a real estate property, for example, if I, you know, if I have to hold on to that property for a year in order to, like, you know, make sure I can either flip it or, sell it or, or, or rent it out, I'll do that. So I, I think that I have more of a cushion to do that. But if you're talking about someone that's just starting and they don't have that necessarily that cushion that I have, it's hard to tell somebody you need to cut it. If you ever watch the show, you know, Shark Tank, one of my favorite shows. I love watching that show, like, religiously. And it's always, like, how Mr. Wonderful tell people they need to take it, take it out to the back and shoot it. And I think that's the wrong thing to tell somebody, to, you know, shoot their dreams. When you may not believe in it, believe in it or think that it could make money, but sometimes it does. Like they turned down the deal for Ring, and Ring went on to be like a, a multi-billion-dollar company that they didn't invest in. So I, I think for me, it's at least a year. But for others, 
I can't, I feel like I don't have the right to tell you when to give it up because it's really on you, especially if you're bootstrapping on your own. How long can you go? Do you, do you passionately believe in this? Can you generate money? Are you doing what you need to do? I, I just, it's like an iffy with that because when people start a business, it's their everything. It's like their child. People, like, you know, they hold on to it, you know, with everything in them. So I don't know that you can tell somebody when to give it up, but I would say at least a year from my perspective, at least a year. So tell us about, you know, you said you were raised in Houston, but the my mind goes to the curiosity of what made you this person. Were you raised in an entrepreneurial family or uh, your father influenced you, your mother? I was actually raised in a single-parent household, but it was my grandmother who influenced me. Um, she's always owned, she passed away almost two years ago, but She's always owned her own company. You know, she was a single mother of nine kids, owned a beauty salon, owned real estate in Chicago because her kids were born and raised in Chicago. And she took care of her whole entire family, like off her income, always had her hands and other streams of income that we all we consider multiple streams of income now. She's been doing that for years. And so she was my model, my inspiration because I watched her. Like that was my... When I would get out of school, she was my after-school daycare, if you will, because my mom couldn't afford to pay for daycare. So I would go to her beauty salon or, you know, her beauty school and go sit with her. So I would watch her do this and watch her, you know, make money as a, as a business owner. So it, that was my biggest influence. And that's when I, I knew from, like I said, from high school, I was going to own my own business. I was never good at taking orders. I was better at getting them. And tell us about the influence of Madam C.J. Walker. Walker. Walker, yes. So one of the first African-American millionaires um, ever, and it's interesting that, you know, I share a birthday with her, which I am, like, always so stoked about. We are both born on December 23rd, and she was the first. Well, there's been some some disputes about, you know, who was the original first female black millionaire, but widely history has credited her as being the first, and she owned a hair care line, and she expanded it from there, and, you know, it, it made her a millionaire. And she didn't have, you know, the college education. Like, she really just started from scratch. And so I admire the fact that there was this woman in that time frame. Like, we're looking at a time frame where, you know, it was still, there were certain parts of the country that weren't accepting of, you know, black people owning property, land, da 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 you know, certain parts of the country. And she did all of this mostly up north. So it was just understanding that someone could take, a fraction of what I had access to when I started, you know, and not even having social media or Wi-Fi or any of the things that make starting a business that much easier and still becoming a millionaire with that without the access, I'm inspired by that. So that's why I'm really just blown away by her and absolutely adore her. Wow. So does your what does your family think about what you're doing and that you're traveling abroad so much? Are you going to go back to Houston at some point? Uh, actually, I, I, I visit because most of my family, most of my immediate family is in Houston and still in Chicago as well. So I visit between both cities. But I, I've always loved to travel. I would tell you one of the last quote unquote real jobs I had before I decided to like uh, you know officially start my business is I went for Continental Airlines. I've also worked for Delta and for Southwest. So the last one was the Continental Airlines. I was there for almost maybe three and a half, almost four years. And what kept me there that long was the flight benefits. That's the only thing that kept me there. Had it not been for the fact that I could 
not only buy pretty much for free on Continental, but get like almost 90% off on standby tickets for other airlines and hotels. And I would just take like, you know, work my five day work week and then take off on whatever flight was open that I could get back home on. And I'd be the country. Like I'd, you know, arrive the next morning, spend maybe one night or two if I could and come right back. And I would do this every single weekend I was off. I fly somewhere. Like I, I have loved to travel forever and working for the airline kind of just open that horizon. So like, I just want to get on a plane and go somewhere. I don't care where it is. I just want to go. So you've tried Chiang Mai, you've tried Chicago and kind mm-hmm. of everything in between. Um, yes. Now you're in Miami and, yes. and finance isn't a limiting factor to where you want to live. So mm-hmm. is Miami where you found is, uh, the coolest place, or is there another place that you really love that, you know, you could kind of tell us about? Um, and that one city that I lived in that, you know, I did mention earlier is Malaga, Spain. And it's like, I think the third largest city in Spain. And I lived there, um, what was it, 2015, I lived in Malaga. Some parts of me want to go back because I just love the environment. It's in the southern coast of Spain. It's sunny year-round, kind of like Miami, but without the humidity. And it's just good people, good environment. It forced me to, like, you know, speak Spanish because, you know, there you'll be, it's kind of expected. And it just, it was such a good time. If if anything I'm looking at, it's probably getting a residency, residency visa for Spain. That's what I'm looking at now. Or even France, but more than likely Spain. Hmm. Now, do, you, <laughs> do you see yourself, is, is your work family become your family? I heard you say you were single and didn't have kids and, you know, like, is this kind of your uh, surrogate family, I guess? Is it? In a way, I would say, because I, I think it's, that's who I communicate the most with in terms of email, chat, and all that stuff. That's who I communicate with. Of course, I have my inner circle that, you know, I'm very close to, a mixture of family and friends who I'm very close to. But I would say, you know, you typically spend more time with people you work with than anybody else. I would say yes, that would that would be it. And when I do have downtime, I think most people will probably be surprised to know that I am really deeply introverted. So, you know, when I have to be public and I have to speak maybe with a client or maybe a vendor or a partner, then I become extroverted when, you know, an interview, whatever the case may be. But I like my downtime. I have no problem being alone, going out to eat by myself, going to the movie by myself. No problem with any of that at all. I relish that. So we only have a couple of minutes left. This has been a wonderful interview with you. Thank you so much for your time. What? Tell us a little bit about supporting women through your angel fund. Yes. Yeah, so it was just um, it's something that I self funding using the money that I've made thus far and. You know, a minimum, I think, like $50,000, maybe a maximum, depending on the business, you know, of a quarter of a million. And then, again, it's, it's me wanting to put back into someone. I know what it's like to start from nothing. I know what it's like not to be able, you know, to, when angel funds weren't really around as much when I initially started. They were there but not as present. And then knowing the facts on how it hard it is for women in general to get funding from D.C. firms, it kind of made sense to offer an avenue where – if I think about this, it allows me to do what I, the underlining themes, empowering women. Second thing, it, in the end, you know, obviously every company investment is not going to be a winner. I, I'm clear on that. I'm, I, I've taken some losses already. I know that. But in the end, it could be potentially be another income stream 
based on equity, share, and any royalties that may or may not be there. So I feel like it's a way of giving back and a way of earning some passive income and really creating change overall so it's a win-win across the board. But it's me investing my own money, starting small, and then building from there. Okay, so uh, where can people go to get more information about you? And is there anything that you would like to share with us that we did not cover already? Um, they can go to justfearlesswomen.com, and you'll see, like, the Angel Fund, Her Story Connections, and everything about us and links to everything, so justfearlesswomen.com. And I would say the one thing we probably didn't cover, we, and we kind of did, but, you know, I did write a book called From Failure to Fearless, and it's available on Amazon. And I just, you know, wanted, I literally shared all of my business failures, like from the beginning until the point when that book was published. And really, because I wanted people to learn from them, to learn the mistakes that I made, the sacrifices I made, so that they can avoid them. I think most times as we're growing a business, people only see, like what Wade mentioned earlier, being a 10-year overnight success. They only see that the plus side of it. They'll hear this podcast, and they'll, you know, see, oh, you know, she's doing eight figures. Wow. And she's, you know, growing and building from there. But they don't know how many failures I had, how much money I lost in the beginning to get to this point. And most books don't ever talk about that. So I think most people would find it very valuable that there's no fluff in it. It's just straight to the point. These are the failures I encountered in business, and here's how you can learn from this so that you don't encounter and don't have to lose the money that I lost in the process. Wow. Very inspirational. Like, Thank you. Yeah, this is great. Thanks for coming on. It's, um, it, it's nice and refreshing to, to hear those scenarios where it's like, no, learn from my failures like you can actually, you really can, right? It sounds cliche. We say it all the time, but you know, you, <laughs> you know, actually like read this book. This is what I did. This is what I got out of it. Don't do that. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I remember in my company, uh, we did a whole, a, a show podcast on mistakes we've made. So, cause we worked with mom entrepreneurs and trying to say, don't overinvest in design and logos and you know, things like yes. that. We're like, because everybody's like, oh, I'm going to design my business card, you know, and buy 5,000 of them. No, then you're going to change your no. mind. <laughs> yeah. Then like, don't do that. You're going to realize that you don't like it. Okay. Exactly. Keisha May, thank you so much for being on uh, Beyond Eight Figures. I'm sorry Steve wasn't here. He would have grilled you a little bit more, but we love the conversation with you. Thank you so much. <laughs>